Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. So I think we've got last week's up there, which is fine. I can, I can definitely roll without it, but that is the outline from last week, which if you guys want to write that one down again, you are more than welcome to do that. All right, this morning we're going to be in verses 31 through 48. We're going to be looking particularly at the, the idea of trust and relationships. I'll begin reading in Matthew 5, verse 31. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect." Well, this morning, as we work through this passage, we're going to be considering this idea that God's children should be trustworthy and sacrificially loving. God's children should be trustworthy and sacrificially loving. Well, this week's passage continues the same pattern that we saw last week. In other words, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. So this is, you know, but now I say to you. And in doing this, Jesus is teaching us two primary things, the first of which is the intent of God's law or the heart of the law, the second of which is Jesus' authority over the law. In other words, he's demonstrating that he, as the giver of the law, has the right to interpret the law. And so as we see this, the first thing we're going to consider this morning is that followers of Jesus should be trustworthy in verses 31 to 37. The first couple of verses that we come to here, verses 31 and 32, are really the shortest paragraph in this entire section. But they probably raise the most most questions because they deal with the question of divorce. And so the first thing that we should be trustworthy in is in our commitments to our marriages. Our commitments to our marriages. Is divorce biblically allowable? And if divorce is biblically allowable, is remarriage then permitted. Well, this discussion hits all of us in different ways, doesn't it? Uh, For instance, some of us are here this morning and we are happily married. Some of us have been happily married for a long time. I was at John and Carolyn Spearman's 60th anniversary celebration this weekend. 
It'll be a long time before I see 60, but that's a long, yeah, applause is fine, sure. And appropriate, I think. Some of us have been happily married for a short time. Some of us are here and we are unhappily married. Maybe some of us are even looking for a way out of the relationship that we're in. Some of us are here and we're single. Some are single and have never been married, or some are single through either divorce or through being widowed or, or some other relationship. And so we all experience this in different ways. Perhaps some of us here even find ourselves in a relationship characterized by abuse and wondering how we can protect ourselves or our children. And so this hits all of us at different spots. And before we kind of move through this, I want to add that uh, if you're single and trying to figure out how that interacts with uh, the world around us, all right, I'm going to catch us up here. I think we're up to speed. So if you haven't caught up, as you know, I go so slowly through this, don't I? Everyone tells me, could you please speed up? Just kidding. If I hear anything, it's slow down, please. All right, so here you go. We'll, do, uh, we'll, we'll kind of back up and, and roll through this. Thank you for uh, your help in, in getting this up and rolling. But Jesus himself was single, so we don't need marriage to make us complete, but God has given us marriage as a gift. But this touches us all. Even if you right now are in a very happy marriage, at some level the brokenness of marriage in our world touches all of us. My parents, before my dad passed away in 2005, were married for 30 years. And so I had the blessing of seeing a faithful commitment to marriage, but I also saw how hard that was over the 25 years that I was a part of that marriage. And maybe, you know, maybe some of the time I made it hard for them, I don't know. But it was hard. I mean, there's, marriage isn't just kind of this eternal honeymoon of bliss. It's something that requires a lot of work from any of us. But, you know, both of my parents were from broken homes of two marriages on one side, three on the other side, and the third marriage ended in divorce. And so marriage, if it's, if it's not right in your house, or a divorce, if it's not right in your house, it's going to touch you one way or the other. It touches all of us at some level. Well, Malachi 2 teaches that God hates divorce. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. Well, God couldn't be much more explicit than that, could he? Because marriage is a picture of Christ's love for the church. And in breaking or distorting our view of marriage, what happens is that our view of the gospel itself, of God's love for his children, God, Christ's love for the church, can get distorted. But God also knows we live in a broken world, a world that is difficult, where divorce happens because of sin, and therefore, he does make allowances biblically for divorce. So we kind of ask the question, is divorce biblically allowable? And, and Scripture teaches that there are three instances in which it can be uh, biblically permissible. The first which of which is what we see here in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus also teaches this later in Matthew chapter 19. The first exception is divorce. Everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality. So adultery is the first exception that we see in God's word. So if someone abandons their marriage vows to the point where they pursue a relationship uh, with another person's uh, sexual immoral relationship, uh, adultery can be grounds for divorce. Now, God never requires divorce. He never commands divorce. Reconciliation often is recommended, even in very difficult situations, but God does allow for this. A second exception is abandonment. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is teaching there, and he's talking about a relationship particularly between unsaved spouses. So one spouse is a believer, and one spouse is not a believer. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 15, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. In other words, if one spouse abandons their marriage vows, the other spouse doesn't kind of have to live in perpetual enslavement to, to guilt in a sense of uh, you know, commitment to that when, when one spouse has abandoned the marriage vows. And the third exception, this is nice, these are all A's, they alliterate adultery, abandonment, and the third is abuse. So this is an outworking both of adultery and in 1 Corinthians 7, the idea of abandonment. So this is not something that's new in 21st century, but throughout church history, the church has allowed for divorce in cases of abuse because it's seen actually as an abandonment of the marriage vows, a breaking of the marriage vows to the point where uh, a spouse must leave for his or her safety or the safety of the children. I'll also add that when a divorce is biblically defensible, I also do believe personally that marriage, that remarriage is permissible. Now, not every, not every person agrees with me or every pastor agrees with me. I'm just saying that when God allows for divorce biblically, I think he also allows for remarriage. And so these are kind of important categories. They're not really, frankly, at the heart of what we're looking at this morning, but you can't really talk about divorce with kind of out under, without kind of understanding all that scripture teaches about it. So this brings us then back to uh, our passage today and our commitment to marriage. What Jesus refers to here is a certificate of divorce. The law required this certificate be given in a case of divorce, and this is because uh, all of the culture protected the rights of men and actually not the rights of women. So what could happen, if you remember from last week, it was possible for a woman to commit adultery, but not for a man to commit adultery unless he took some other man's wife. But he could have as many partners as he wanted. So the certificate of divorce is a legal protection in that culture for wives. For instance, a husband's going along, and he's uh, he's married, and then he spots someone else he wants. He goes after that person. He kicks his wife out of his house, but he doesn't give her a certificate of divorce. What happens is she's still legally bound to him. She's destitute. She's kicked out. She has nowhere to go. But until he gives her this certificate, she's not really free to leave. And so what would happen is abusive or overreaching husbands would use this as essentially a way to keep control over it, to enslave their wives, basically, to keep them under their thumb. And so this certificate freed them up to be able to move on. The problem was, even though God allowed this, what happened over time is that you have the law, which this, this, these laws about divorce are in the book of Deuteronomy. You have the law, but then beyond this, you have the tradition around the law. You remember this? So you have the law itself, and then you have what the rabbis, what the teachers say about the law. And what they began to teach over time was basically for men, it was like, get out, easy, anytime you want. And so one school of thought taught about this set of laws, for instance, that it was reason enough to get a divorce if your wife served you something you didn't like for dinner. So if she like burned, burned the toast, you could kick her out. Or uh, another school of thought said, hey, you know what, if you spot a more beautiful woman and that's the woman you want, go get her. And, and these were then permissible, defensible divorces, not under God's law, but actually under the tradition that became equated with God's law. And so into this culture, Jesus speaks, and he speaks a radically different message and says that God's design for marriage is lifelong commitment of one man and one woman to each other. I mean, God's plan has never been easy in, easy out. So what this culture was teaching was actually a twisting of God's design for marriage. Marriage vows are lifelong, not only because they're a commitment to another person, they are, but primarily because they are a vow before the Lord. So in Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus is teaching about marriage, he says, let not man separate what God has joined together. 
the old King James said, let not man put asunder. You, you remember that phrase? So that phrase is the idea is the two people are making a vow. They're actually making it before the Lord. So a lot of times in Christian marriage ceremonies, we say something like this, that before God and this company or this congregation or this group of people, I pronounce you man and wife. It's, it's, an, it's a sign that God is the one really sealing this deal. Well, how is it then that the way Jesus says it here, if a man divorces his wife, she becomes an adulteress? Because it sounds like he is, doesn't it? So it kind of sounds the opposite. What Jesus is saying essentially is what, what this husband then forces his wife into. Because in first century culture, it's not easy for a woman to go out and get a job. So he kicks her out of the house, and what happens? She has nothing. She cannot survive. So the only way that she can survive is actually in that culture by getting remarried. And so Jesus basically says, you haven't, you haven't followed God's design for uh, marriage or divorce, and therefore you're forcing your wife into something that's outside of God's design. And then she and then her new husband are going to be, and so kind of the, the, the cycle perpetuates. So not only are you sinning against your wife, you're drawing her into your sin. You're essentially forcing her to participate in this sin. You see, God takes our marriage commitments seriously, and so should we, because ultimately marriage is about this. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, marriage isn't the ultimate reality. The ultimate reality is God's love for sinners, is Christ's love for the church. And so we sit here this morning as evidence of the fact that marriage is about the gospel, that God died to save men and women who are tempted to abandon their marriage vows, who are tempted to pursue other things, to save men and women who are single and think that marriage will save them. God died for us and loves us to rescue us from finding hope in this world. Marriage is for those who lose hope in, in God, and God reminds us through marriage that God is a sacrificially loving God. And if we place hope in any human or any human institution to save us, we will be disappointed. But if you turn to Christ, you will find a Savior who loves you. And God uses a picture in his word to teach us this. If you read through the Old Testament, you come to the prophet Hosea. Now, Hosea is not your typical prophet in the Bible. He's got a little bit different ministry. His ministry is one of calling people to trust in the Lord, but his ministry is primarily to his wife. And we know about him. He's famous because of his relationship with his wife. God calls him to marry an unfaithful woman. Her name is Gomer. And the story of Hosea's life is pursuing her, Gomer, over and over again. Over and over again, she prostitutes herself. She sells herself. She pursues relationships with other people. And God tells Hosea, pursue her, pursue her, pursue her. And so he pursues her in love. And what we see in the book of Hosea, God teaches us this, is that Hosea's life and Gomer's life is a picture of God's love for us, that God pursues us. God chases us when we would chase after other things. God is a pursuing God. And in this picture, we are not Hosea. We are the unfaithful spouse. And so what the gospel tells us is that God pursues unfaithful people, people with adulterous hearts, people who love and long and worship other things, and we chase these other things. And God's pursuing love chases us down and chases us down and chases us down. And God keeps coming after us, and God keeps pursuing us, even though our hearts are prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. The gospel is the message that God loves people who don't deserve his love. The gospel is the message that God is the ever-faithful husband who loves his faithless, adulterous spouse. You know what that's like? You know what it's like to 
want to love God with your heart, but always be tempted to, to run after other things, to be tempted to pursue something else, to be tempted to find your joy, your hope, your peace, your contentment in something else. And if you're here without faith in Jesus Christ, if you're here outside of Christ, you don't know the love of God that way. And the only way that you can truly experience this kind of wonderful, accepting, pursuing love of God is by placing your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. So would you turn from finding that place of love somewhere else and find it in Christ? Jesus is the true bridegroom who never abandons his bride. This is what Paul teaches us in Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. The love of Christ is an ever-pursuing, ever-faithful love. And Romans 5 teaches us that while we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. It's an amazing love of God, and the gospel teaches us that marriage is just a small picture of the love of God. And brothers and sisters, if we faithfully, sacrificially love one another, what that teaches the world around us is about the faithfully, sacrificially loving nature of our God. God calls us to be faithful in our commitments, trustworthy in our commitments to our marriages, but also in our words. Here Jesus expands on the idea. In first century culture, uh, the idea was that you could lie to God, but you couldn't lie to your fellow man. So if you didn't swear to God, then you could tell all the lies you wanted. And even in this, they kind of had this pattern of oath-keeping that you could, you, could, you could kind of swear by these certain things and you weren't bound to it and other things you were bound to it. So for instance, if you said something that sounded good, like I swear by heaven and earth that I'm telling the truth, you could actually tell as many lies as you wanted. But if you swear by the, God's actual name, by Yahweh, then you were bound to that. You had to tell the truth. But you could make it sound like you were telling the truth, kind of swear by all these other things, but it didn't really happen. Or, for instance, uh, Jerusalem, the holy city. If you swear by Jerusalem, you don't have to keep that promise. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, you have to keep that promise. So what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, whether you swear by heaven or or Jerusalem, God made all of those things. Ultimately, you're swearing on the the, the nature of, of our creative God. So he's saying, no matter what you swear by, whether it's one of your technicalities or not, you are bound to keep your word. The point is, just be honest. Just be the kind of person that can keep his word. And that's why he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. He's not forbidding swearing in any context or taking an oath. We're not talking swearing as in cussing. We're talking swearing as in keeping a promise, making an oath. Because God himself, throughout Scripture, swears by his own name. Or Jesus at his own trial in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus swears an oath to tell the truth. So he's not forbidding that. He's saying, rather, we should be the kind of people that can be trusted whether we swear on a Bible or not. We should just be the kind of people who keep our word. Christians of all people should be the kind of people who can be trusted. But sometimes doing business with Christians can actually be the worst kind of business, can't it? Have you ever met one of those people that they they posture themselves as a Christian to kind of build trust, but in the end they're not trustworthy? And brothers and sisters, that, that ought not to be. Keeping our commitments matters. We all mess up and forget, but if we find ourselves kind of habitually setting aside our commitments, we're not at all keeping what God intends here. So we move from the idea of trustworthiness to the idea that followers of Jesus are sacrificially loving people. Verses 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Well, this quote is common, and by this point, it's well-known because it appears in the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, Leviticus, and the book of Deuteronomy. 
But this law wasn't promoted to require vengeance. Rather, it was to limit it. In other words, what happens if someone punches someone, the other person punches them, and and then they both try to win the fight? Well, this is kind of family feud, first century world. Uh, Back right around the time of the Civil War, in the middle of the Civil War, 1863, the Hatfield-McCoy feud started. How many of you have heard of the Hatfields and McCoys? Well, this is because of this feud, not because they're such famous people, but this feud that lasted almost 30 years. So from 1863, middle of the Civil War, right up until 1891, when it reaches the Supreme Court, there's this family. There's the first murder. There's a rumor about who did it. Who knows who really did it, but then they start kind of killing one another off, and it escalates. Well, this law is intended to prevent that kind of this ever-escalating revenge. And so in this culture, Jesus actually teaches something quite a bit different. Rather than seeking retaliation, we should interact with others, he says, out of mercy, love, and grace. And then he gives us four kind of pictures to help us understand this. The first is getting slapped on the face. The second is when someone takes your tunic is the word here. It's basically your shirt. So there were certain situations where someone could need something of you legally and they could ask you for it. Well, if it's a cold day, maybe it's a little bit cool today and you're a little bit cold in here and someone's cold and they ask you for clothing, you're required, then your obligation is to give them your shirt, but the law said you could keep your your coat, your cloak. So you could keep kind of the warmer outer garment, but you had to make sure they had some level of protection. Or he talks about someone going with someone one mile. Well, soldiers could sign a kind of conscript help from civilians. They could say, I need help carrying my luggage, or I need help carrying my weapons or provisions or whatever, and they could require you to carry what they needed you to carry for up to one mile. The fourth picture is someone who just asks you for money, someone in need. In every case, Jesus presses us toward love, grace, and generosity. You get slapped on one cheek, he says, turn the other cheek. Someone needs your shirt, give them your coat too. Someone says, go with me one mile, and you literally go the extra mile. That's where that phrase comes from, going the extra mile. That's what Christians ought to do. Someone needs something, and you give it to them, he says. Now, there's a part of me that says, so Jesus, are you saying like this, we just become endless objects of abuse? That's not his point. That's not the point he's making here. There are other areas of Scripture where God addresses the idea of abuse and injustice. But rather what he's addressing is our heart of sacrificial generosity toward other people. The point is that Christians should not be primarily characterized by fighting for our rights, but rather sacrificially loving other people generously. Then Jesus drives this point home in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You see, the heart of the law is love, to love God with our whole heart and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, we don't get this story in Matthew, but in the book of Luke, there's a story to help us understand this. As was often the case, there are people kind of, they're tempting and accusing Jesus, and they're talking about the great commandments. And what are the two great commandments? To love God and then to love your neighbor. Well, then there's one lawyer there who's particularly tricky, lawyers, apologies to lawyers, and he says, well, who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus is a pretty bright guy himself, and so he tells him a story, and he tells him a story about a man on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, and on that road, he gets robbed, beaten, and left for dead. And as he's lying there by the side of the road, 
two men come by. One's a priest, one's a Levite. They're spiritual leaders. They're kind of the preeminent holy people in that community. They walk by and they see this man. He's kind of gross, bleeding, grimy. They're kind of, they're either afraid for their own safety or grossed out by him. And they walk by the other side and they keep going and they leave him there for dead. But then comes along a third man. And who's this man? This is the Good Samaritan. This is where we get the story of the Good Samaritan. And he sees the same man lying there and he goes and helps him. He binds up his wounds and he takes him. He takes him to an inn and he pays for his care there. And he says, I'm going to return, give him whatever he needs. And at the end, I'm going to come back and I'm going to settle all his bills. He owes nothing for his care here. He generously, radically, sacrificially gives to this man. But the thing that's not immediately evident in this story is the person who's hated in the story actually isn't the man lying by the side of the road, although at some level he's in a position of need. The person who everyone there hates is the good Samaritan. Everyone rejects him. This is their enemy. This is their culturally despised person. He's the person that no one wants to talk to. He's the cultural enemy of everyone else in this story. You see what Jesus teaches there in that story and what he teaches here explicitly is that loving others at some level, is loving those who we tend to resent and tend to despise. Well, here Jesus uses two illustrations to show us that God loves all people, even those who are God's enemies. He says that God sends son, he sends the son on good and evil people. And he sends rain on just and unjust people. So let's say you're a good, faithful, kind, loving person, and your next door neighbor is a jerk. And there's a thunderstorm. Where does it rain? Both houses, right? God sends rain on both. He sends his love, his common love, on both. And then he gets to the point, what does it mean to be kind when someone's unkind to you? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Whether it's commitment in our words, whether it's loving others sacrificially, the bar isn't our expectations. The bar is God's perfection, which is much higher than any of us can meet. All right, so let's step out of theory a little bit and ask ourselves this question. What does it look like for Ashley River Baptist Church in Charleston, November 2018? What does it look like for us to love our enemies? It might look like thinking of some extremist or fascist or somewhere even our own country or halfway around the world, and, and it, it might include that and, and loving that person enough to pursue them with the gospel, and I think at one level it does include that, but I think a little closer to home, it means that we love the people around us that are hard to love. And this, this is difficult. It's hard for us to take the people that interject themselves into our lives in a way that is trusive, frustrating, irritating, and burns us up. It's hard to love that person. So how can you love that person? Well, Jesus says first, pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. And it may not be direct persecution for your faith, but that's a good place to start. If you've got someone who feels like your enemy, pray for that person. But secondly, it means we change the way we talk about that person. It means we change the way we talk to that person. It means the way that we disagree with each other has to change. What does it look like to love our enemies? You see, the the habits that we form affect the way we communicate with each other and about each other. Why is this so important? Well, verse 44 tells us it's because loving your enemies shows who your father is so that you may be children of your father who is in heaven. If we fail to love our enemies, there's some connection between our identity as God's children and loving our enemies. 
Because God is the kind of God who showers love on those who are his enemies. Romans 5 teaches us. While we are God's enemies, he loves us. While we are sinners, while we resist God, he loves us and sends his grace toward us. So what happens when we hear an opinion or a thought or a word that just totally rubs us the wrong way? Well, first, it's hard. I'm just going to be, it's hard for me. Like, I, this, this, is, this is no holy roller, like, I've got this down. That ain't how it works. This is hard for all of us when it rubs against the grain. But I think we can follow Jesus' instruction. Pray for that person. Like, before you react to that person, before you respond to that person, pray for that person. And then ask God, okay, what does it look like to love this person? God, you love this person. Somehow, I don't know why, because there is nothing in this person that attracts me. But God, you love this person. Would you show me? Would, would you show me how to love this person? I don't know how. God, help me love this person. And sometimes this feels impossible. Sometimes it feels impossible to love people this way. But God tells us how this happens in Jeremiah 31. Because the law, God says, is now written on our hearts. Jeremiah 31 teaches about a new covenant. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. In other words, God's law of love for neighbor is now written within us. And God's spirit teaches us this. So if you don't know how to love that person, ask God's spirit. Dig in God's word. God, help me. How do I sacrificially love this person? Think about the person who feels like your enemy. Pray for that person and ask God to help you love that person. And over time, what happens is God softens our hearts with the water of his word. His word changes us from the inside out. So let's take a moment now and respond to God's word and repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to pray, and perhaps there's someone that you should pray for. Perhaps God is bringing a name to mind. I'll give you a moment to pray, and then I'll close uh, this time in prayer. Let's talk to God now.